Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse uh, basically 18 to the end of the passage is what we'll deal with today. And if you were here early, you would have noticed the, the announcements panning through. Uh, we're going to take a break from Ephesians for a, a, about a month and a m- month and a bit. Uh, we've done with a real chunk, and uh, we're going to go to the book of Jonah for, for about a month, and then we're going to come back and do another chunk out of the book of Ephesians. Uh, and uh, so we look forward to uh, both the, the break. Uh, I'm excited about going through the book of Jonah, and uh, also look forward to coming back to Ephesians a little bit later. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come now before your word, the living book the everlasting Word of God. And uh, thank you that we have this treasure. Thank you that we have this um, guide for life. Thank you that you have not left us in the dark about who you are and about what our needs are and about how you have designed us best to live. Thank you that you show us how we are to walk as we respond to your great mercy and grace that have been poured out in our hearts and in our lives. And so as we pull together some thoughts from this portion of Ephesians this morning. Father, may it be of um, great help for us this week as we go from here, as we um, walk with you, as as we respond to the grace of God, as we live in this world, but know that we are not to be at home in this world. So make this book live, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. For the last number of weeks, uh, we have been dealing with this theme of walking with God. And uh, by that, we know that we don't mean physically walking with God, but rather the way that we carry ourselves, the orientation of our life, um, the, the boundaries of our life. To, to walk with God is, is, is to live for God. And so to walk with God is, is, uh, is synonymous with living for God. And we have been uh, working our way through what it means to walk worthy of the God who has called us. We chatted a little bit about what it means to walk in love. Uh, we looked at what it means to walk in light, and as we conclude this sort of picture of what it means to respond to God's grace, we end with looking at walking in wisdom. And uh, walking is a, is a theme that we find in the Bible. Uh, Jesus referred to it in, in his own way in the Sermon on the Mount when he says there, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Two ways. One is a broad way, one is a narrow way. One is an easy way, one is a hard way. Two two destinations. One is destruction and the other is life. And I was thinking of this uh, this past week as I've been tearing apart a, a bathroom in our home. And I have certainly found that the way of destruction is the easy way. But the way of life is the hard way. And uh, it's easy to take a hammer and a crowbar and rip things apart and break things. It's another thing to put them all back together in a way that looks good. In a much more meaningful and purposeful way, the way of the Christian life is a narrow way. It It is a hard walk, but it leads to life. And so Jesus referred to that walk. You go through the Old Testament and you come to Psalm chapter 1, which is one of the more familiar passages to walking uh, as a Christian. And there we are reminded that uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a Christian, we are to walk not in the counsel of the wicked. We're not to stand in the way of sinners. We're to be characterized by those who are in the way of righteousness. 
And when you go through the Old Testament and you look at the word walk, more often in the, in the Old Testament, the word walk is referring to a lifestyle than it is to a physical way of walking. So throughout the Bible, walking is a descriptive term for the way that we live our lives out before God. Uh, even walking can identify you. Uh, I was looking at, uh, re- recalling a couple passages. Um, there's one passage where uh, a fellow named Jehu has been anointed king, and he's been told to, uh, to, to go and to carry out his mission as the king, and he's going into the city, and he's riding on his chariot, and the watchman is sitting on the gate of the city, looking out, watching the dust cloud coming up, and he says, uh, he says the, the one driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimishi, for he drives furiously. Just the way that he drove gave away who, that he, who he was. Um, also, uh, there's an instance where David has sent his armies out to fight a battle um, um, and to try and deal with Absalom in the rebellion. And Absalom is dealt with, and uh, the commanders send back some runners to the city to give David the news about, this, uh, about how the battle went. And uh, when the watchman is looking at the distance far, far away, he sees one running, and he says, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimezaz, the son of Zadok. So even by his gait, even by the way that he walked, he could be identified, just as Jehu could be identified by the way he drove his chariots. So you and I can be identified by the language that we use, by the decisions that we make, by the attitudes that we have, by the reactions that we show, by the, the ways that we carry out our life, we can be identified as those who walk with God. And so Paul has been really pushing forward this notion of how do we walk in response to God's grace. Last week, Gerald introduced us to this topic of walking in the wisdom, and he dealt with a couple of the, the issues of walking in wisdom. It's contrasted with walking um, wisely versus unwisely. Um, walking in wisdom is also characterized by how you use your time. Those who are wise use their time wisely. And walking in wisdom is also characterized by understanding the will of God, knowing the will of God for your life and for decisions that you make. The third point, which we're going to look at this morning, is walking in wisdom is characterized by being filled with the Spirit, by being filled with the Spirit. And so as we think about a a, a walk with God, as we think about walking in wisdom, The way that Paul illustrates it, if there's one main point that he makes, is it's who influences you or what influences you. The one who walks wisely is influenced by the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that controls and directs one's life. And so walking in wisdom is all about who or what influences you. And Paul starts by, by saying what you shouldn't be influenced by. And it's an illustration of how one, something can influence our life for the negative. And so he starts out in verse 18 and says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debaucherous, debauchery. In other words, what Paul is saying is that wine or alcohol influences your behaviors. It influences your actions. It influences your words. We recognize a person when, that, that is drunk because they lose control. They lose control of their speech. They can't make good decisions. Their driving is a little bit reckless. Their behavior becomes not normal behavior. Their actions are things that aren't characterized when they're sober. And so we understand that when somebody consumes alcohol, the more alcohol they consume, the more it influences their life. 
the more it controls their behavior and their actions. And so the person who drinks comes under the influence of alcohol. And Paul uses the passive verb there to say that when you, you might actively drink, but you give up control to the alcohol, then that takes over and influences your behaviors. Paul's further point is that that is not a good influence because it leads to debauchery. And debauchery is not a word that we use a lot today, but it's a word that means sinful behavior or reckless behavior or bad living. And you know this, um, if you've been at, uh, at, at university or in the workplace, that um, sometimes the water cooler talk is about what their behavior was on the weekend. And most often, if they've gone to a party and got drunk, it's not flattering behavior. They, they joke about things that they said or about things that they did or about the fact that they can't remember what they did. And if it's been an office party, sometimes you realize that their behaviors and their actions have not been really great. And so they, the alcohol has influenced them to do things that they wouldn't normally do. So Paul, what he's saying is he's saying that if you want to walk wisely, what is it that's going to influence you? What is it that's going to control you, that's going to take over your life? A few weeks back, we were talking about the process of becoming more like God, sanctification. And we said that it's a, it's a replacement process. It's like taking off dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. If you take something off, you've got to replace it with something. So he says, stop lying. What do you replace it with? Telling the truth. Stop stealing. What do you replace it with? Being generous. And so in the same way, don't be influenced by alcohol or by anything else. Be influenced by the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be accused with driving under the influence. But rather, be noticed for W-U-I, or walking under the influence. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Let the Spirit of God take over your life and control and influence you. When that happens, you are walking in wisdom. And in this small little phrase, there's, there's three things that sort of stand out. The first one, it, it's in a present tense. So being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing experience of the believer's life. It's not a one-time event, but it's a daily, hourly thing where you submit yourself, you open yourself up, you invite the Holy Spirit to come and to fill you. Secondly, it's a command. It's not an option. It's not an option for the Christian to, to, to resist the Holy Spirit, but rather it's a command. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Open yourself up to the influence of the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, it's in the passive tense again. So just like if somebody drinks alcohol, but then the alcohol takes over and influences them, so when you open your life up to the Holy Spirit, you, you obey the Holy Spirit, you, uh, you walk in the Holy Spirit, you're led by the Holy Spirit, but He comes in and He influences you. He takes over. He guides and He directs your life. And so Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean then? If, we're, if, we're, if, you're, if you're to be filled with the Holy Spirit, how do we obey it and how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? There's lots of different ways that people have looked at this. And I think in the context, the answer comes from the, 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 the complimentary letter that Paul writes in the book of Colossians. 
uh, there, it's, the Colossians is almost an identical letter to Ephesians. There's things that are ordered differently, but it's written by the same Paul at the same time and delivered by the same delivery person. And so you go to Colossians and you find almost the same parallel passage to the one that we're looking at here. And in Colossians it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see the parallel? Being filled with the Holy Spirit, let the word of God dwell in you richly. How are we filled with the Holy Spirit? I think one of the most significant ways we're filled by the Holy Spirit is to ingest the Word of God, is to read the Word of God, is to absorb the Word of God, is to let the Word of God dwell in us richly. And doesn't that make sense? Because isn't the Spirit of God the author of all truth? Isn't the Spirit of God the one who leads us and guides us in truth? Isn't the Spirit of God the one who teaches us? Isn't the Spirit of God the one who who guided men and moved them along so that what they wrote was the very Word of God? So to be filled with the Holy Spirit in this context is to have the Word of God, the Word of the Spirit, fill your life. To, to, to ingest the Word of God, to think about it, to meditate on it, to memorize it, to read it. Let the Word of God dwell in you richly is to allow the Spirit of God to fill you. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be filled with the Word of God. So then what does a Spirit-filled life look like? If, if, if we're to walk in wisdom, and walking in wisdom is in part being filled with the Holy Spirit, how can you tell if you're filled with the Holy Spirit? How can, you, how can you gauge or look at yourself and say, yes, I am filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, he talks about three ways that the Spirit influences us. Three illustrations of how the Spirit of God, um, how being filled with the Spirit of God is seen in our actions. When you're drunk, it's seen in debauchery. When you're filled with the Spirit, it's seen in these three ways. There's more, but these are the three that Paul gives. The first one is walking under the influence of the Spirit impacts our worship. It impacts our worship. Notice what he says there in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your hearts. A Spirit-filled person loves to worship God. And notice the, the, the two ways in which we worship. There's a horizontal dimension to our worship, and there's a vertical dimension to our worship. And I think, I fear that we have so concentrated in worship on the, hor- on the vertical that we have forgotten the reality of the horizontal nature of our worship. Do you notice what he says there? He says, addressing one another in hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. Do you know... That, that, and that's why I think it's so hard to be a lone Christian. How do you address one another in worship if you never join with a body of believers? But what Paul is saying here is that there is a horizontal reality to our worship so that when somebody comes in and, and they're dejected, they've been beat up by the world, and they sit beside you, and they hear you singing with gusto, and they see the joy in your face, and they hear the volume in your voice, you are singing to them. You are encouraging them. You are building them up. See, worship is a corporate experience. 
And when you raise your hands, you encourage the person beside you. We're going to take communion at the end of the service. And one of the things about communion is it's a proclamation of the Lord's death. So you're saying to people around you, you're proclaiming by your participation that you believe that Jesus has died for you. And so Paul says that that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you think about others when you gather to worship. How you sit, how you talk, how you participate, how you look, um, the, 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 the strength of your voice. When we sang um, a cappella a couple times this morning, that is so encouraging because you hear people around you worship. So there's this horizontal reality to worship. So Paul says, those that are filled with the Spirit come to worship God with the intention to encourage other people, to comfort other people. To build other people up. That's why you go to 1 Corinthians and Paul is so concerned about tongues and interpretation. Because he says, if there's just tongues and no interpretation, how do you build one another up? How do you encourage one? They don't know what you're saying. He's saying the same thing. That, that worship, there is a horizontal reality to it. But the second thing that he says is not only do you sing to one another... But he says also that you sing and you make melody, melody to the Lord with all your hearts. See, when, when you're filled with the Spirit, when you gather together for worship, there should be a welling up in your heart, a song and a melody towards God for all that He has done for you, for the way that He has sustained you this past week, for the hope that He gives you for the future week, for Christ being in you. And so as you sing and you make melody, your focus is on God and you lift your voice and you lift your heart and you lift your head and you lift your eyes. Uh, You know, there's that psalm, He is the glory and the lifter of my head. Have you ever come into worship and and you've just been so bummed out it's been such a tough week. You're so discouraged. And it's like God, as you start singing, as people around you start singing, it's like this invisible hand just catches you under the chin and lifts your, lifts your head up until so you gaze at God. And so one of the evidences of walking in wisdom is being filled with the Spirit. And one of the ways that is worked out is in the way that we worship. Worship cognizant of the people around us. Worship with a focus on God. The second thing that Paul says, uses as an illustration of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is walking under the influence impacts my attitude. Impacts my attitude. One of the things that Christian people should be, they should be thankful people. Our will, world is full of ingratitude. And in fact, Paul says in the last days, it will increase even more. But look at what Paul says in verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. A spirit-filled person is a thankful person. When you're around somebody that complains all day long, complains about everything, never is thankful, is always bitter, is always critical, you wonder where is the Spirit of God in them? Where is the transformation that is taking place? Where is their view of God? Whereas one who has a growing understanding of God and His power and His might and His sovereignty and His ability to guide and direct this whole universe to accomplish His purpose, they are full of gratitude and thanksgiving always and for everything. That's hard for us to handle that. that. I think maybe we can start with some easier things there. Thankfulness is always directed towards God. 
I looked through all the passages I could see to give thanks in the New Testament, and every one of them, directly or indirectly, said give thanks to God. And so we give thanks to God for the food that we have in our homes, the clothes that we wear, the cars that we drive, the jobs that we have, the beautiful world that we live in, the hope that we have. We give thanks to God because He is the Almighty One. He is the controller of heaven and earth. He is our Heavenly Father. Our thankfulness is directed to God who gives all things to us. And next he says, and it should be always. And I don't think, well, we wrestle with that, but I see that woven throughout Scripture. I I give thanks always. I'm giving thanks always. It's an attitude of our heart because we recognize that even through the crummy stuff in life, even through the hard parts of life, God is still in control. God is still guiding the outcome. God is still directing the affairs of the world. There's not a world in which evil evil is partly in control and God is partly in control and we don't know who's going to win. Loved ones, we know the outcome. God wins. God is directing this world. God is in control. So however hard it is, we, the attitude is always giving thanks and for everything in a very trivial way. And I know some of you have wrestled with massive things in your life, but we've been working on our bathroom, um, renovating our bathroom, and what a silly thing to do. But one of the first things that I did was I gutted it right down to the studs. And as I tore off all the drywall and had it down to the studs, we noticed in the insulation all these track marks everywhere. And I wasn't too concerned about it, but my wife had rags everywhere blocking off any entrance out of the bedroom because we thought we had mice. So we called the exterminator and we had carpenter ants. So we had to get the house all fumigated for carpenter ants. About five hours after they left, I started to give thanks because initially I was really mad. I thought, why? I've got all this work to do. Now I've got to go away from the house. But as I thought about it, I said, thank you, God. Because now we've found the ants. And now we hope those ants are dealt with. And so in that small, silly little illustration, I began to give thanks to God, even in the midst of my frustration, because we found the ants and we dealt with the problem. I know when we wrestle through this sort of stuff, that there is, there is this understanding of God that undergirds our thanksgiving. That the greater your knowledge of God, the greater your understanding of God, the more one is able to give thanks always and for everything. But it's something that you learn and that you practice as you come to know who God is. I've wrestled with this for years. Are we, are we to give thanks for murder and abuse for cruelty and hate? No, I don't think so. We can't speak uh, with God's Spirit and give thanks and at the same time praise and thank God for the things that He hates, right? So we don't, we don't give thanks for those things that happen, but we give thanks for the way that God works those things out to accomplish His purposes. We're, we give thanks to the fact that evil does not trump God. We're like Joseph who says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so our thanksgiving is again directed to our understanding of God and His power and His love and His holiness and His justice and His character to even take those things that we don't like, those things that are hard, those things that are difficult, and bring them to bring about His purposes. So when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, when we're constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit, there is this attitude of gratitude that we have. There's this ability to give thanks always and for everything. I've been reading a book this past year. Uh, It's a a chapter I read every week on the Heidelberg Catechism. 
Heidelberg Catechism has been separated into 52 weeks, and, and there's a Lord's Day reading for every week, and it's been just such a refreshing thing for me to go through this standard catechism and be reminded of it. But uh, in the one section on Lord's Day number 9, he was talking about the, the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Uh, and, and then there's a, about three pages of instruction about that. And he, he write, the author writes this, he says, He will turn to good whatever adversity he sends me. The Bible is not naive about suffering. Trusting God's provision does not mean we expect to float to heaven on flowery beds of ease. This is a sad world we live in, one in which God not only allows trouble, but at times sends adversity to us. Trust, therefore, does not mean hoping for the absence of pain, but believing in the purpose of pain. After all, if my Almighty God is really Almighty, and my Heavenly Father is really fatherly, then I should trust that he can and will do what is good for me in this sad world. And thus I can give thanks always and forever everything because my Father is the Almighty Father. This is tough stuff, but this is the demonstration of walking in wisdom, being filled with the Holy Spirit, that we cultivate this attitude of thanksgiving. So we see that being filled with the Spirit should impact our worship. Being filled with the Holy Spirit should impact our attitude so that we cultivate thankfulness and thanksgiving in our hearts. And the third one and the final one, he says, is that walking under the influence should impact my relationships. Notice what he says in verse 21. Not a word that we like, and it's unfortunate because it's a biblical word and I think it's a wonderful word. But he says, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. First of all, I think it it maybe helps. In in a very general way, submission means to fall into line, to come into line behind. It's a military term, term that was used as soldiers were marching in order and they come into line. And so submission in a very general way just means bringing yourself behind, bringing yourself in line with. But submission also only has meaning, I think, in the context of authority. If, you, if there is no authority, then submission means nothing. And so submission is a term, a biblical term, that gains meaning from understanding biblical authority. Authority is a gift of God. I hope you know that. I find us rebelling as a culture against authority at almost every turn, and it's rather scary But loved ones, authority is a gift of God. Because of the authority that God has placed in this world, the universe um, is maintained as it is. Because God has given us authority, we have a country in which we have relative peace and safety. God has given authority um, not only in the cosmos, not only in the country, but he's given authority in churches. He's given authority in the homes. And these authorities are God-given gifts so that we might live orderly lives and we might live peaceful existence. So if you remove authority, then submission means nothing. Secondly, submission has nothing to do with equality. It has nothing to do with worth. For instance, one of the greatest examples of submission and authority is the Trinity. Do you know that? If you rail against submission and authority, then you rail against the Trinity. Within the Trinity, we have God who is one, this is really mind-blowing, who is in three persons. 
That's tough to understand, but there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all equal. They are all God. And yet, the Son submits to the Father. And the Spirit submits to the Son and to the Father. So they are equal. They are all God. And yet there is an authority structure by which the Spirit and the Son submit to the Father. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a biblical thing. It's a right thing. And so submission is the right response to God-given authority. And what Paul is saying, and this is really critical, a spirit-filled Christian is a one who responds correctly to authority. As I say, I find authority being challenged again and again and again in the day in which we live. Children challenging parents. Tension between husband and wife. Tension in churches. Tension in, in government. Tension in our world because we refuse to submit to authority any longer. There's an attitude of rebellion that is growing and festering in our culture. Paul is saying the evidence of a spirit-filled believer is that they are learning to bring themselves into submission to proper authority. When he talks about it here, notice what he says there. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We need to not confuse that there. What Paul is not saying here is that we, there is, we submit to everybody, anyone, anytime. So, uh, you know, that would be chaos and confusion, would it not? If we just submitted to one another, well, you're in charge today, I'm in charge tomorrow, nobody's in charge now, I'll submit you. No, you're supposed to submit to me. It'd be chaos. What Paul is saying is, no, there's a biblical principle here that people who are filled with the Spirit will submit to one another when there is proper authority structures out of reverence to Christ who also submitted himself to God, who sent him down to earth to die for us, who submitted himself to the authority of the world, who submitted himself to the authority of Pilate, who eventually charged him or gave him over to death, who submitted himself to the authority of the religious leaders. So submission is something we learn from Christ to authority. So one of the evidences being a spirit-filled Christian is that we submit to God-given authority. And I'll just read these very quickly. Um, Maybe when we have time, we'll come back to them and look at them. But submission is everywhere in the Bible. We are told to submit to governing authorities because there is no authority except given by God. That means who's ever in power, we submit to them. Whether we submit to the police officers or we submit to teachers because they are those who are in authority over us. We submit to governing authorities, employers, and employee relationships. Servants, be submissive to your masters. If you're hired by somebody and you work for them, you submit to their authority. Um, in, in children to parents, that parents, um, Jesus, it said, he went down with them uh, and came to Nazareth, and he was submissive to his parents. Jesus submitted to the, the authority of his parents. Church leaders, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. To God, submit yourself to God. Wives, submit yourself to your husbands. See, submission is woven through the Scripture. So what Paul is going to do, and we'll come back to this when we're looking at Thesians, we're going to look at a various number of ways in which Paul illustrates this submission out of reverence. And so, but, but in general, it's simply enough to say at this point, that each of 
each of those things that we looked at, government, home, um, work, uh, marriage, these are illustrations of, of God-ordained authority to which we are to submit to that authority. So three illustrations of, of, of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. One is it should influence the way that I worship God. I should worship God um, with, with, with my whole heart, and I should worship in a way that encourages those around me. Secondly, as, as one filled with the Spirit, I should be filled with gratitude. That there should be an attitude in my heart that in, at, at all times and for everything, I cultivate a thankfulness because I know who God is. I know His power. I know His might. I know His character. And even though I don't like the circumstances, I submit to God and I give thanks to God. And then the third illustration of being a Spirit-filled believer is that I submit to authority. Is that I submit to God-given authority. How do you walk wisely then as, as we sum this all up? You walk wisely by, by, by not being unwise. You walk wisely by using your time properly. You walk wisely by understanding the will of God. You walk wisely by being filled with the Holy Spirit who then helps you in worship, who helps you with thanksgiving, who helps you in submission. And all of those then are reflected of what it means to walk wisely. Where does that, how does one get into this path of walking wisely? It begins with the most basic area of submission in our life, submitting to God, submitting our life to God, coming into line with God. That is the best place in the world to be, loved ones. And whether you're a long-standing Christian, you, if you keep fighting the authority of God, your life will be miserable. You'll have struggles all the way. But as you bring your life into line with the Word of God and the God of the Word, you will find your life being filled with greater and greater joy and happiness. And how do, how do you, if you're not yet a Christian and you're looking, how do you bring your life into submission with God? Well, it starts by submitting to Jesus Christ. It starts by even just recognizing the rebelliousness and the sinfulness that you have in your heart, which is ultimately directed towards God and directed towards his, what he says about you and what he says about this world. And it means recognizing that you have a sinful, rebellious heart in you. And realizing I don't want that any longer. I don't want to fight it any longer. Recognizing that as we come to a table like this, recognizing what has happened so that that rebellion can be taken away. Well, Jesus lived a perfect life and he died in my place. He bore the penalty for my rebellion and for my sin. So that, that, that I, because I couldn't live the way that God wanted me to and I can never pay for all the sins that I've committed. Never. Even if I were to sin, stop sinning now, I couldn't pay for all my past sins. And so what the Bible tells you is that Jesus died for you. And that if you will recognize your, your rebellion and your sinfulness, and if you will accept the fact that Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live and died in your place, and if you will believe in Jesus, believe that he took your place, the Bible says you can be saved. And you can come into line with God. And you can do that even this morning. You can do that before you leave this place and say, Jesus, 
I recognize my rebellion and I don't like it and it's bothering me. And I, and I, I have just a small understanding now that, Jesus, you came to this world and I don't know all about it, but I know that you came and I, I know that you were different. I know that you were perfect and I know that you, were di- that you died. And I, 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 I've heard that you died in my place. And that if I would believe that, I would be saved. I believe. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus died and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you too can come into submission with God and begin to walk this spirit-filled life walking in wisdom.